You may be seated. So as Chad mentioned, we are in our series, Nine Conversations. In this series, we're taking a look at some individual dialogues that Jesus has with some people that he meets in his earthly ministry. And this morning, we're going to be looking in the Gospel of Luke at a conversation that Jesus has with a man who's possessed by a legion of demons. Sometimes when I try to write sermons, uh, things start to go wrong. My car breaks down, uh, my arthritis acts up, Ember gets sick. Rob has to go unexpectedly on a trip. This last round, we actually had um, an infestation of flies in our house because uh, some trash had fallen behind the bin that we didn't see. There's a literal plague of flies on our household. Um, here's an actual text message between me and Rob. He was on a trip during the time, during the time I was writing this one. Rob texts, how's it going? And I respond, well, after Ember had a meltdown because the TV didn't work this morning, I discovered that Ramsey's, our dog, had puked on the carpet twice. Ember kindly informed me that's because he ate all that paper out in the yard. Apparently the raccoons had gotten into our bin and scattered the trash about the yard. And I'm eating a chocolate bar for breakfast. P.S. I miss, I miss trash pickup. I'm sorry. I love you. <laughs> and do you know what I discovered was the force behind all of these mishaps? Demons. No, I'm just kidding. That's, that's, that's not it. Um, but in seriousness, if you're a Christian... And, 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 and you go and you set about the work that God has given you to do, it should be no surprise that the minute you start to do that work, you are met with diversions and obstacles and challenges and conflicts. We, we shouldn't be surprised by that anymore because it's not coincidence, it's not karma, it's not punishment, it's just good strategy because there is such a thing as the evil one and he is at odds with God and with men. My husband is a wonderful human being, so when I get a little behind in my sermon prep, whether it's because of, you know, kind of things like that that are unexpected, or just because we're in a very full season of life, he will on occasion use his airline miles to rent me a hotel room for a night or two so that I can do hours of uninterrupted reading and writing for a couple of days. And every time that I go on these little study retreats as I'm walking out of the house, he waves and he's like, have fun, and I want to yell back, it's not fun, it's work. But who am I kidding? Of course it's fun. Because anyone with small children knows that doing hours of uninterrupted work is glory upon glories. And it doesn't matter how hard you're working. No one is crying or asking you for a juice box. And that is really something. So there are a couple of books I wanted to read in addition to the commentaries that I looked at for this sermon. And so I was grateful when Rob offered to put me up in a hotel. It seemed like a really good plan until I got to the hotel and realized that he had sent me away for two days to go read about demons alone in the dark. This was a terrible plan. I can't even go to the movies in October because of the trailers, you know? You, you could be there to watch, you know what I'm saying, yeah. You could be there to watch Sherlock Gnomes, but first they're gonna show you the trailer for Bride of Chucky. Like, why do they do that to people? So before we get into a conversation about Jesus's uh, interaction with the Legion of Demons, I think it's best that we just start with some basic theology so that my sermon doesn't keep you up at night. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made that have been made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So Jesus Christ made all things. All things were made through him. Satan is a created being, and therefore he comes under the authority of Jesus Christ. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. So, so Lucifer is a created being, which means he was created good. But we know from 1 Timothy 3 that the devil's sin was pride and he fell. Genesis 3, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So, so Satan wants to get back at God and he wants to do anything he can to hurt him, but he can't get to God. So he comes for us, God's beloved, and he tempts us and we fall. 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. 
but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when Jesus died and rose again, the devil was defeated. Sin and death were defeated. Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So, so the devil has been defeated, but he is still active. He's still active in the here and now. And then Revelation 20. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So, so Satan has been defeated, but he's still active until the time when Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead, and Satan and his demons will be thrown into the eternal fire. And I give you this little overview to, to make clear a very important point from the beginning. Evil is finite. It had a beginning, and it will have an end. Jesus has already won the victory over the evil one. The devil has been defeated, but he still thrashes about in the throes of his death. And like, like a wounded animal, I think he can become even more violent and dangerous as he sees his end approaching. And so while we need not live in fear of the enemy, we would be wise to be aware of his tactics and strategies. It's important for us not, not to have a, an unhealthy preoccupation with the realm of the demonic, but, to, but it's wisdom to understand what it is that we're up against. So let's look at the text. We're in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. It's in your bulletins, or you can just listen as I read. They sailed to the region of the Gerizines, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerizines asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. This is God's word. So let me deal with what I assume are your most pressing questions first. Can animals be possessed by the devil? If Jesus cast the, the demons into the herd of pigs, does that mean my cat, Freckles, can actually be the spawn of Satan? I don't know. The truth is we don't know. I think a lot of cats give off that impression just by being themselves. But, but the truth is we don't know. We can't answer that except to say that in this instance, the, the text suggests that, that, that animals were possessed on this one occasion. But that doesn't, that's descriptive, not prescriptive. It doesn't mean that that always happens. It just says animals can be possessed if Jesus commands it. Now, donkeys can also talk if God commands it, but that only happened once in the Bible. So we would do well to not focus on questions the text does not attempt to answer. Probably a more important question is, can Christians be possessed? I think not. 
I'm persuaded by scripture and by the scholars that I've read that once Jesus makes his home in us, there is simply no room for anyone else. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now that does not mean that the devil won't employ other tactics and strategies, one of which may well be to tempt us to disbelieve in his existence. We cannot fight what we will not see. We become easier prey when we don't know what we're up against. Do you believe in the devil? Even bad pop culture sometimes gives us a glimpse of good theology. Constantine said, not the Roman emperor, but the 2005 Keanu Reeves version. Constantine said, you should believe in the devil because he believes in you. In The Usual Suspects, Roger says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world that he didn't exist. Do you believe in the devil? And you may not believe in the supernatural. I've met Christians who don't believe in hell, but, but a right reading of this text requires at least the acknowledgement that, that Jesus believed in the realm of the demonic. Theologian John Caird writes, ancient opinion ascribed to demon possession any disease which involved loss of control, epilepsy, delirium, convulsions, nervous disorders, mental derangement, and which therefore suggested the presence of an invading power. Modern medicine can provide other explanations for most of the symptoms, but this does not mean that demon possession can be dismissed as outmoded science. To Jesus, all diseases were caused by Satan, though not all by possession, so that with each of his cures, he was driving further back the frontier of Satan's dominion. Now, we find this difficult to accept as modern people because we, we now know that it's, mir it's not miracles, it's medicine, and there is both truth and folly in that. The truth is that medicine works. The folly is the idea that we invented it. At best, we discovered it. Is that not a miracle in itself? And if we conclude that the devil is no longer at work in supernatural ways among us, I think we've lost some of our footing in our battle against him. Because scripture tells us plainly, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Do you believe there are spiritual forces at work in the heavenly realms? Or do you think that we're just up against our own sin? our own selfishness, our own pride, our own greed. There's something more at work here. There's an enemy. You can still be a good scientist and believe in God. I don't think you can disprove the existence of God by understanding the existence of science. Who, who made the laws that the universe obeys? Was it no one? Does that not take just as much faith to believe as someone? Even Aristotle, father of logic, could, couldn't explain the existence of anything without what he called the unmoved movers, the forces that began all movement but were themselves not moved by anything. You see, if you trace a thing back far enough, even if you're the brightest mind in the entire world, you come to a dilemma that science cannot resolve. There are still some things that even for the unreligious must still be taken on faith. So a little context for this passage. We find Jesus sailing into what is essentially Gentile territory, that, that region east of the, the, the Jordan, east of the Sea of Galilee, was more Greek than Jewish at this point, which is evidenced by the presence of pig herds. Pigs were an unclean animal for the Jews, and so for there to be herds here would indicate that it's more Gentile territory. And this man he meets manifests a slew of the indicators of demon possession, living in isolation, nudity, shouting, seizures, um, extraordinary strength, and of course, recognition of Jesus as the Son of God. And the text tells us that this man had broken chains that bound him hand and foot, and he had been driven by the demon to solitary places. In this particular story, he's living in the tombs. In the other versions, we see that he's also been cutting himself with rocks. And the first question that Jesus asks this creature is, what is your name? 
Now, in some ancient rabbinic tradition, there was the idea that when you were performing an exorcism, there was power in knowing the name of the demon you were trying to cast out, that, that you would have greater power and authority over him if you knew what he was called. But this is Jesus, who already has everything in heaven and earth under his authority and would certainly have no need for tricks or stratagems to cast out a demon or a group of demons like this. So why does he ask this man's name? In all the commentaries I looked at, there seemed to be two possibilities for this. The first was that um, it was simply to demonstrate to the, to the disciples the serious nature of the situation. He says his name is Legion. That's, that's a military term indicating a force of thousands. And he says in the Mark passage, my name is Legion for we are many. So there's certainly merit in that. Jesus is making a demonstration of his authority. And for the disciples to see that he can subdue a force of superior numbers would certainly prove that point. But the other option that some of the commentators wrote was, was the idea that Jesus asks the man's name to awaken his humanity. He asks what his name is to draw out his personality from the, the thing that had taken over, to call out to the soul that existed before and, and still exists separately from, from the squatter that's now in his body. What is your name, he says, to reach into the mess and to draw out the man? Do you ever have a nickname? When I was growing up, uh, I had a few nicknames. My grandfather very sweetly called me Nuck, which was short for knucklehead, but from him it was a term of endearment. My brother, among other terrible things, would on occasion call me Bucky the Bucktooth Bandit. Um, I had a tooth uh, when I was growing up that stuck out almost, almost horizontally as if to indicate the person I was talking to. How are you today? You know? Um, and I hated that tooth. It was so awful. But we were too poor for braces, so I was stuck with it. And then when I was in middle school, I had this very happy accident happen to me. This was circa the 1990s when Terminator 2 Judgment Day was wildly popular. And uh, the first time I saw that movie, if you've ever seen it, the, the first scene is a close-up of Linda Hamilton, who plays Sarah Connor, doing pull-ups in a, in a mental hospital on this just intense pull-ups on this pull-up bar. And, and I watched Sarah Connor doing these pull-ups, and she instantly became my very first superhero. I wanted to be like, I want to do pull-ups like Sarah Connor. That's what I want to do with my life. So I got a pull-up bar. And, I, and it's one of those adjustable ones that you have to tighten between a doorway, you know? Um, problem is, I'm a delicate flower, and I'd never done a pull-up in my life, and I wasn't strong enough to tighten it, enough to bear my weight. So I jump up on it, and the bar gives, and it, I, I fall flat on my back, and the bar comes down and cracks my ugly horizontal tooth clean in half. So, <laughs> but when I went to the dentist to get it repaired, he somehow took the bonding and affixed it so that the tooth pointed down instead of out. It was like magic. My, my buck tooth was, was fixed overnight. And so I go home and I proudly display my new magical smile to my brother. And he looks at me, and he looks at the tooth, and he looks back at me, and he says, you'll always be Bucky to me. And, and you know what? I, I still, I can't look at this tooth without seeing what used to be. I know in my head that it no longer points at the people I'm talking to, but, but somehow that, that name still has power over me. There's power in names. Names are powerful. And so Jesus asks what this man's name is, perhaps to recall to him that he is, he's still a separate entity from his tormentor. His name was not Legion. That was the squatter. His name was something else. The man's name was something else. His name was not Liar. His name was not evil. His name was not murderer. What, what evil had done in him did not define who he was, nor does it define us. Your sins do not define who you are. Your name is not liar or cheater or failure or stupid 
or used goods. You are not the sum of your bad decisions. You are not defined by them. When you cross the line of faith, you are clothed in the righteousness of God. So those names are no longer what's most true about you. That is not your name. Verse 31. Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. This is the only use of the word abyss in the Gospels. It can also be translated underworld. In the Old Testament, it was used to describe uh, the depths of the earth or even the sea. Um, and, and here it's used to, to signify the, the final place of judgment of demons. And what's fascinating about this is that even the demons understand that their time is coming. Even the demons understand. In the Mark passage, they say, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? They know it's coming. They accept it and they bow before the authority of Jesus, even if they despise him for it. They don't imagine a scenario where they can actually win. Demons are not optimistic creatures. Evil is finite. And even evil knows its end is coming soon. Evil cannot win. But here is the wicked cunning of our enemy. If he cannot win you, he is content to damage you instead. One of the most effective strategies of the enemy, I think, is to convince us that God is not good, that he doesn't care, that he doesn't really love us. And, 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 and hardship is often the way that he makes his case. Because even as Christians, we can know the devil has lost the war. We can know that Satan is bound. We can know all this. And yet in the midst of our pain, we can feel as though none of it actually matters because I can't find a job and we can't make rent because I lost a child, because I don't know a day without chronic pain. Listen, this is very real and very serious suffering and God takes it seriously. And in the midst of it, we can begin to feel like the binding of the enemy is not so much unbelievable as it is irrelevant. And we begin to feel like, Jesus, it doesn't really matter that you won because your winning doesn't feel that much different than losing. The enemy dangles the carrot of happiness in front of us. And he says, if God doesn't give you this, how can he call it love? Listen, our enemy is trying to damage what he cannot own. Don't let him add to your suffering the impotence of despair because he dangled that same carrot in front of Jesus. He offered him the kingdom without the cross. He said, if God is really your father, he's gonna protect you. He's not gonna let one of your bones be broken. He offered him every earthly comfort and happiness and power. And if that's what God called love, none of us would have any hope. If that's what God called love, we would all perish in our sins. The absence of pain is not an accurate measure of the love of God. If that were true, then Jesus could not have gone to the cross. What God called love is forever written on his hands, and anyone who sees it could never call it anything else. Don't let the enemy who has made us to suffer so much already, don't let him use that suffering in his own defense. Remember where the pain started and remember how the end of it was purchased. Verse 34. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town in the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. 
Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerizines asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. Recently, I ordered um, some new bath toys for my daughter, ones that cannot by any measure hold water in them because the ones that we have now, it, it doesn't matter how vigorously you squeeze the rubber duck, it just it doesn't all come out. So I wanted some that couldn't get nasty on the inside. So I made the mistake of opening this Amazon package in front of her and it was like 10 in the morning and she looks at me and she's like, mommy, can I get a bath now? And I'm like, no, babe, we're, we're gonna wait until after dinner at our normal bath time. And she was like, but I wanna play with the bath toys. I was like, babe, I, can you just be patient? I need you to try to be patient for mommy. Can you be patient? <laughs> yes, I can be patient. So she runs upstairs to go be patient in her room. And uh, maybe two minutes later, I hear her yell, oh no! And she comes running down the stairs and says, mommy, mommy, I had an accident. Now. She's almost, but not quite potty trained. We've been like weeks with almost no accidents. She's been doing really well, so I was a little surprised. But what really made me think that treachery was afoot <laughs> was her level of enthusiasm about having had an accident. I mean, ordinarily, you know, she's horrified when she has an accident. She cries, she has to take off whatever extravagant princess dress her grandmother recently gave her uh, that she'd been wearing around the house for two days and change. So, so she, not only was she not embarrassed by this accident, she was downright effervescent about her little pee spree. Mommy, I had an accident. Come upstairs, I'll show you. So I look at her, and I get down on one knee and I say, babe, did you have a pee pee accident on purpose? And she's like, and I say, babe, did you have a pee pee accident so you could take a bath? Like I was reading her mind. I mean, just blow. And you know, she's a brilliant little schemer. I'll give her that. Sometimes we get so preoccupied with what is, <clears throat> excuse me, with what is good that we forget, we lose track of what's actually best. I mean, my little girl was willing to sit in her own filth in order to play with bath toys. And I like bath toys just as much as the next person. But if you give me the choice between that and bladder control, like that's an easy choice. Sometimes. We find ourselves concerned about all the wrong things. The, the, these people were concerned with the swine, and I get it. In the Mark passage, we see that there, there's about 2,000 in this herd. This was their livelihood, their security. For the Romans and other Gentiles, the pig was a sacred animal. It was to be sacrificed to the gods. It was eaten in sacred meals. These animals were precious to them. I understand that they are experiencing a loss, a loss so costly, in fact, that they beg Jesus to leave them, perhaps because they, they fear further loss. But that doesn't change the fact that, that a man's life still hung in the balance. These, these herdsmen were no longer afraid of the wild man, and so Jesus' presence could only mean material loss and, and nearness to an uncomfortable power they did not understand. They were, they, they were more comfortable in the presence of evil simply because they had become accustomed to its noise and its violence. And I, and I think there's a danger for all of us here. I think we can all become desensitized to evil when we choose to live with it. We can live with it so long that its hideous strength is no longer even frightening to us and, 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 and we forget that it could ruin us. What evil have we become so comfortable with that we forget that it could ruin us? Like naive kids who have walked so close to the precipice all our lives that we forget that the, that the first slip could also be the last. These people are more comfortable in the presence of the wild man than they are in the presence of the holy man because evil has only inconvenienced them by placing a madman in a road that they are using, but the madman himself is being torn to pieces. 
And Jesus could have cast these demons anywhere. He could have cast them into the abyss. He could have cast them anywhere, but he chooses to cast them into this herd, this precious herd. So, so, and, 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 then, and then the entire herd perishes with the demons upon them. Why? Why would he do that? What? I think, among other things, he's challenging us with a question. What is more important to us, pigs or people? What's more important to us, pigs or our brothers? There are people in this world right now who don't know where hope is found. They don't know Jesus. And they've been wrestling their own demons and perhaps they've been driven by them to solitary places in despair. What have we withheld that seems too precious to risk to invite them into his grace? What comforts are we so consumed with that we would not risk them to rescue one whom evil tears to pieces? We don't know for sure why he used the pigs. I think it may have been to challenge us in this way, but, but I think there's also something even more in this story, something even, um, something reminiscent of an even more costly loss. When Jesus saw those pigs rushing down into the lake and dying, I wonder if it reminded him of what he was doing on earth. Because Jesus would take all of our demons upon himself. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He took all our sins upon himself, and then he perished that we might live. And to the Father, the Son was more precious than every creature ever made, more costly than any loss. And yet he would have done no less for even one man, even the vilest man, even the man among the pigs. Because Jesus did not find death too costly a price to pay for you and for me. Verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. There's a lot of things going on in this story. It starts out as an exorcism. It ends up as a missionary tale. And I think there's some, some wonderful wisdom in here that we don't really have time to talk about in the idea that, that not all missionaries are meant to go. Some are meant to stay. I mean, God is calling all of us to, to be a missionary in our own sphere of influence where we find ourselves right now. Some of it's in our own backyard. This man goes back to his hometown to tell about what Jesus had done for him. But, so there's a lot of things going on, but at its core, this story is a story about the authority of Jesus Christ. Theologian Eugene Boring writes, by the way, that's his real name, and I'll never actually purchase my own copy of Eugene Boring's uh, commentary on Mark because every time I borrow Gary Abbott's copy, I guess he gave it back with a note that says, thanks for the boring commentary. And that joke will just never get old for me. So Eugene Boring writes, this is not a story about the response of faith and its transforming power, but about an invasion of alien territory and reclaiming it for the kingdom of God. This is a story about the authority of Jesus Christ. And in, in all three of the synoptics, this story occurs in tandem with two other stories. It's always preceded by Jesus calming the storm and then it's always followed shortly after by Jesus raising a little girl from the dead. And I think that the, the writers of the gospel, they mean to indicate something with this order to us. They, they're, they're saying, look, he calmed the storm. Therefore, he has authority over the natural world. He cast out the demon. Therefore, he has authority over the spiritual world. He raised the little girl from the dead. Therefore, he has authority over death itself. Jesus has authority over all things. They're saying his authority it extends to every nook and cranny of creation. There is nothing that doesn't come under his authority. But again, while our enemy is defeated, he still grasps at us from his deathbed. The war has been won, but, 
the reality is, is that the battle still has casualties. Our, our resistance of sin still matters. Our witness to our neighbors still matters. Our actions still have consequences. On, on May 8th, 1945, the German forces made unconditional surrender to the Allied powers, effectively ending World War II in the European stage, VE Day. But it took 119 additional days. It took 119 additional days for the last of the German soldiers to, to surrender on remote Bear Island on Norway. That's two days past VJ Day, which is the official end of the war for the entire world. Even after the victory was sure, even after the war was won, people still died. Do you understand what I'm saying? That, that's the reality that we find ourselves in as the body of Christ. The war has been won, but the battle still has casualties. Our enemy has not yet laid down his arms. What he's trying to do, the, the devil's aim with, with every hardship, with every accusation, with every temptation is, is to batter you into submission. He wants you to give up. He wants you to stop fighting. He wants to convince you that resistance doesn't really matter because you know what? We're all going to get to heaven anyway, right? In the end, so does it really matter if we cut corners a little bit with our holiness? Does it really matter? I mean, there's grace, right? Yes, yes, there is grace. And yes, you still may make it to heaven in the end. But listen, there are those who still may not. And they're watching us. And they're watching the way that we live our lives. And if we live our lives like our actions don't matter, they're going to think our faith is a hobby. But if we live our lives full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, if we do all of that in the midst of our hardship, then there is a chance. There's a chance that they're going to see us and that they're going to that they're going to become curious about the God we live that way for. There's a chance for them to find hope. So listen, don't quit fighting. Don't lay down your arms. Don't lay down your arms when life gets hard because evil is finite. It had a beginning and it will have an end. In Christ, it, it, we're not fighting against a force that's actually capable of winning. In Christ, you may not win today, even when you struggle you may not win today, but you cannot lose forever. So keep fighting. Because someone fought for you and somebody needs you to fight for them. Now, I'm not saying that, that all suffering is the result of a demon, but it is safe to say that all suffering is unnatural. All human suffering, whether supernaturally imposed or only the sequitur consequence of a bent creation, all suffering had its beginning in the cunning of our enemy. The enemy who tempted us to act against our nature, against what was natural, and thus invite into the world and into ourselves the bending of all that was straight, the decay of all that was immortal. And in, in this way, all terrestrial evil, whether inward or outward, can be said to be unnatural. At best, we can only call it common. So don't give up the fight against what has never been natural for the image bearers of God. The good news is that, that we don't need to discern this. We don't need to discern if, if the hardships that we are facing are the result of evil wrought by demons or evil wrought by men because our response is always the same. We move toward Jesus. We draw near to Jesus before whose authority both the natural and the supernatural bow low because he is the master of the chaos outside of men and the chaos inside of them as well. One last observation I want to make about this story. My work in regroup, I, 
I sometimes get overwhelmed by um, all the work that there is still to do, not just in the world, but in myself, every habit that I haven't kicked, every invitation that I haven't issued, and the weight of it can be paralyzing. I don't always know where to begin. My daughter recently destroyed her room like a tiny Tasmanian devil of cuteness. And before I would let her go outside and play, I told her she had to clean it up. And so she went upstairs to start the work and I, and I heard her start to cry. And so I went upstairs and I found her just collapsed like a little pitiful heap on the floor, just crying into the carpet. And I said, babe, what's the matter? And she said, mommy, I can't clean it up. It's too much. And I said, babe, you just, you just got to start. You just got to pick one thing up. And she's like, I can't do it, mommy. It's too much. And I said, okay, how about this? Can you just pick up that book? Can you put that book in the bin? Great. All right, can you pick up that toy? Can you put the toy in the bin? Great. Can you pick up that animatronic cat that your cousins got you for Christmas? True story. And can you put that, actually throw that out the window because I suspect it's possessed by the devil. <laughs> can you pick up that dress, put it in the hamper? Great. She cleaned up her entire room in that fashion and then she was shocked when she was finished. I think when we see our own sin rightly, when we see the sin of the world around us rightly, it can be overwhelming. It can feel like the sheer volume of evil in the world is too much to overcome. But listen, Jesus demonstrates his authority over a force of superior numbers. And this is so important for us because I think we can all kind of get wrapped up in ourselves and we can, at, 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 all of us at times can begin to think that our sin is a unique snowflake of evil that no one can make up for but us. And so we impose penance on ourselves. We try to work off our debt. We try to do good deeds and even in doing that become prideful and make the, the situation worse. We, we don't always want to accept that Jesus could just forgive us. He could just forgive us. And we don't want that. We want to say, no, not us. Not all that I've done. Not, not the depth of my sin. Listen, that is just another way of questioning the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus is outnumbered here by the thousands, and yet he casts these demons out with a word. So never, ever, ever let yourself say, your blood isn't enough for my sins. Never let yourself say, you don't know what I've done. It's too much. Because here's the truth. Jesus doesn't love you because he's deceived about you. He knows everything that's in there. He knows every small and large thing. He knows every vile thing that's inside of us, but he also knows that it's no match for him. The evil in the world, the evil inside your heart is no match for Jesus Christ, no matter the force of it. I love the, the Matthew passage because it says that he used just one word to cast out this legion of demons. He, he simply says, move. And I love that. It reminds me of the hymn and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Even if you have been wrestling with your demons longer than you thought possible, be encouraged. Neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. You won't be wrestling with them forever. They can't hold you down when Christ raises you up, even if they are clinging to your heels by the thousands, because evil is finite. It had a beginning, and its end is drawing near. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that all things come under your authority. 
Thank you, Lord, that you didn't choose to leave us to perish in our sin, but you came and you became a man and you suffered the costliest of all losses to be with us forever. Lord, we're grateful. Lord, be near to us, particularly in the midst of our pain. Be near to us in the midst of our suffering that tempts us to believe you're not good. And let us remember, God, that that in our suffering we participate with you that you allow us to share the burden of your suffering so that there's still time, so that there's a little bit more time for someone who does not know you to come into your grace. Lord, let us share these burdens with you proudly. Let us share these burdens with you knowing that it's making room in the kingdom for one more lost soul. Lord, be near to us. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.